0: this is going to be an outstanding episode we have peter o'sullivan joining us from down under peter is a well-respected researcher internationally on the subjects of persistent and chronic pain has moved this process of cognitive functional therapy and what that is into the mainstream of pain management this is pain refrain Peter is a wealth of knowledge, but more importantly, He is a wonderful human being that understands the human experience and how we as a medical system have really harmed a large, large numbers of individuals. Yet he will provide a hopeful message that says, yes, we can reverse this and we can move forward. So with no further ado, let's welcome Peter O'Sullivan. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and where you're coming to us from?
1: Well, I'm originally from New Zealand. I grew up there and uh, did my basic training And then I came to Perth, Western Australia many years ago and did my postgraduate training in manual therapy and then subsequently my PhD and my specialization process. So I'm sitting in my home in uh, Perth, Western Australia with blue skies. It's a Mediterranean climate, beautiful spring day.
0: Well, I'd like to say the same. Uh, Jeff and I are here in Colorado, and we are experiencing actually a very wet fall, a little unusual here. So our listeners are very broad, Peter, but I'd love for you to talk about your your work, particularly your work uh, with cognitive functional therapy and persistent pain and how that differs from some of the other cognitive uh, behavioral approaches out there in working with folks with persistent pain.
1: Yeah, so probably what would be helpful would be to give you a bit of my background um in terms of how this process has evolved you know essentially as i trained as a pt in new zealand and there was a lot of influence of mckenzie approach you know very biomechanical strong manual therapy kind of view and then I came out to Western Australia and I trained as a manipulative therapist. I had two two jobs one in a private setting and one in a pain clinic and the contrast was extraordinary <laughs> in, in the sense that in the uh, private practice setting people were coming in with aches and pains and you know they're essentially healthy human beings with a bit of joint stiffness and manual therapy seemed to be pretty effective in this group and um, then I'd go to the pain clinic and people would be wheeled in wheelchairs and there are more pumps and they'd had stimulators put in them and they'd had surgery and they were completely disabled and it struck me that there was this huge gap between the skill set that I had developed as a manual therapist and as a PT that just didn't apply and make sense to these people who are highly disabled and you know these people were coming in and getting multitudes of injections or on a huge amount of drugs and they were profoundly disabled and distressed I suppose that's really where my quest started, to say, as a healthcare professional, do I have skills to deal with this kind of complexity and dealing with people who are disabled and naturally I'm an inquisitive person and questioning person and and so I sort of started on a process of or a journey I think of looking at developing uh, and a process of intervening with people who fit that profile where my training just didn't provide that w- what is cognitive functional therapy and, it, and it's and it's a word we you know we were trying to work out what do we call this process which comes from the the view that people who are disabled with pain have certain beliefs Um, they have a kind of pain schema they'll have often strong beliefs about their pain that pain is uh, damaging or pain is harmful so a sign of threat the way that they control pain is through changing the behaviors and that often leads to avoidance so it might lead to avoidance at work or social interaction but also avoidance of movement or avoidance of an activity and then also linked to that are these protective behaviours. So protective muscle guarding often goes with that. And so you see this whole process, um, which is well described in the fear avoidance model, negative health information and negative beliefs and catastrophic thoughts lead to fear and uh, unhelpful behaviours that lead people caught in a, in a process of pain and disability. And so understanding that, concept around how those illness behaviors can lead to someone becoming highly distressed and disabled looking at unraveling that process both through well certainly through the person's story but in looking at them reconceptualizing pain to understand that they're caught in that process utilizing their body in terms of um, dismantling their protective behaviors and taking them back to the things that they thought they couldn't do uh, like to bend, to relax, to, you know, to pick something up, to go for a walk, to get on a bike, to go for a run, to lift their kids, to go to work, whatever those things are, uh, as well as addressing unhealthy lifestyle behaviours. Uh, is kind of encapsulates what we would see as a, a cognitive functional therapy approach. Now, that differs to true classic CBT uh, in that we do a lot of the doing stuff in a very practical way and often in a very hands-on way and that's different than just the talking part. There is the talking part, the doing part is hugely central to this process.
0: I think that's so interesting what you just said there, Peter, on that idea of the the doing part and the guiding and it is movements or activities that are typically most fearful. Exactly. and, And yeah, in order to, we can talk about that but I mean, people have to experience right you have to experience that you can do this again could you mind elaborating on that maybe in a little bit of a a context or an example
1: if you look at people with back pain for example and look we're we're looking at this now well beyond the back in terms of the knee and the hip and the shoulder and other body parts because the the whole approach this whole idea or understanding around pain isn't just about the back it's about pain but um if you think of the back then the most feared activity for people with back pain is bending and lifting you know what's the scariest thing you can do and they go oh, well i'd never never pick up you know something over five kilograms They go so what do you think would happen and they go we oh, you know my back would crumble or i'd prolapse my disc or i'd have a massive flare-up so then we go through a process of saying, well, look, show me what you would do if you were picking it up. And what you'd usually see, what we usually see, and this is well documented in ENG and kinematic literature, is that people with pain who are frightened tend to move stiffer and with mo- more co-contraction, So they and they'll usually avoid flexion. You know, this comes out of probably these really strong ergonomic beliefs that we've propagated in the, in our society that, you know, dis prolapse and bulge when you flex your back and load it. And actually, there's absolutely (laughs) no evidence for this. If you look at in vivo evidence, there is not a single study to support that. But they're hugely strong beliefs. And they're beliefs that are given to kids, you know, lifting school bags as well as people in a workplace. So these beliefs become acted on, I think, when people experience pain. And so you start looking at someone as they bend, they hold themselves in hyperlordosis, they brace themselves, they prop off the hand, they're frightened to, to bend, and they're hugely co-contracted. And usually it's painful. So what we would then do is observe that behavior and go, well, so what do you think would happen if I got you to not brace your belly and relax your belly and breathe into the movement and not use your hand like oh that'd be terrible so let's do an experiment so we then take the person through a process of dismantling those protective behaviors so get them to relax so in a non-threatening position um, and that might often be on the back just bringing the knees up to the chest breathe into your belly and sitting relaxing on the elbows and the knees then relax forward and you know, usually within 15 minutes, you can then get people who haven't touched their toes for, you know, three years, relax and touch their toes with absolutely no pain. And often you'll get this huge emotional response where they have this complete sense of disbelief that they go, this is ridiculous. Like I knew, like every time I bend, I experience pain. And you've just dismantled these protective behaviors and shown me that bending's safe. And then we can rapidly expose them back into bending and lifting and loading and completely disrupt their pain schema that, you know, the back is vulnerable. It's, you know, you've got to protect it and you've got to guard it if you do stuff. And you realize that that pain schema becomes the driver of the pain, not the thing that they fear. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. and, And that process is so much fun because you can literally have someone come in frightened and walk out like someone's turned their world upside down if you if you're skilled in doing that and doing it respectfully and empathetically and in a very supportive way that the person doesn't you know get a ramp up of their distress as they do it
2: i've seen so many videos of you peter and i can't thank you enough for for putting that content out i mean it's changed so many of my patients lives seeing you walk around stage and the way you interact and the the comfort you portray and getting folks to you know encourage that fearless thoughtless movement you know in so many ways peter i i almost see that and, and by no means am I trying to challenge any paradigm, but I'm curious on your thoughts. So for, for years in my practice with those patients who were coming in, they had a lot of fear on board. There was catastrophizing on board. They had really maladaptive beliefs. And I, I would oftentimes go to specific spinal stabilization exercises because I thought it would make them feel safer you know, that they were stable. I mean, I legitimately believe that. <laughs> and for years, I can tell you right now, at least for me, and maybe I wasn't doing it well, that wasn't working. And as I got introduced to your work and I started getting folks to relax, and again, that fearless, thoughtless movement, a whole world opened up to my patients. Would you say, Peter, that this is almost the opposite of that paradigm or is that is that me taking it too far?
1: No, it is absolutely the opposite. <laughs> it is the opposite. So I was in that camp, you know, 20 years ago. And I published, you know, I published work around that. And it was a belief system. You know, we kind of had the Punjabi model of the neutral spine. And, you know, Punjabi was a smart guy, but he was a carb engineer. And he kind of then adopted these engineering principles, the spine. But the spine, you know, it's not just a piece of engineering. This is a human being with thoughts and beliefs, and it's an organic system. So this kind of whole model of, you know, neutral spine, you know, you're vulnerable at the end of range, all this stuff was hugely part of our mindset. And our belief system. And so it was completely sensible. You say, Oh, be careful at the end of range or hit your yes, neutral spine, you know, co contract when you do this stuff. That was our belief system. Some of our early research. So Wim Dankert's research. We're looking at these people going. Mm, We're looking at people with pain who weren't in pain and looking at people in pain and going, wow, what we're seeing is they don't have a lack of stability. They're they're way co-contracting. So these people were like working their multifidus like crazy. They were bracing their transverse abs when they were doing this stuff and they were telling us it hurt. And the more we did it. You know, the interesting thing that you touch on there, I think stabilization exercises become, for people who are frightened, what's called a safety behavior. It's something they do to make them feel safe, but it actually doesn't take them back. You know, it's not normal to protect something when you use your body, right? It's normal to have free, careless, joyful movement. But in fact, I think a lot of rehab reinforces hypervigilance and these safety behaviors that actually leave people quite trapped. I can think of numerous patients where I've done that and they've come back going, you know, I don't feel good with these exercises. And I'm looking at them going, you don't (laughs) don't look good either.
0: (laughs) Boy, that is so refreshing to hear that, um, Peter. And if I'm not mistaken, could it be about two decades ago, even this month, that that paper in Mm -hmm. spine on spondies? isn't it, about?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. If I think of my evolution as a you know, personally as well as a healthcare practitioner. And, you know, back then we just had such little understanding and knowledge of pain, I think. Um, and so we were applying these biomechanical models the best we could. And, you know, in, in hindsight, I think the benefits that we saw in that group were about building confidence and self-efficacy to, to challenge people with engaging with um, fed activities. I think that's why we saw a benefit. I don't think it had anything to do with the muscles <laughs> at all.
0: <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. And that's what I was intrigued by your last comment that, again, you know, this idea, if we provide them the ability to do something and perhaps it's taking their mind off the activity they're doing because they're focusing somewhere else perhaps it's like oh this i've sold it really well that now you are stable you can do this so our belief system has been reframed i do think And that's where I I will confess that when we don't know the mechanisms, then we may go down a path that might not be appropriate. When we we believe that the reason these guys got better or gals got better was because… Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. We're seeing that more and more in um, some of the work that some of our researchers are doing. We're seeing shifts in things like, um, with this approach, major shifts in levels of self-efficacy and reductions in fear seem to be the key mediating factors for clinical success. And, you know, we were thinking it was around what was happening at the segment, and and actually it's what's happening in the mind <laughs> that that is reflecting the big change in, in people's pain. And if you de-threaten something uh, and you build confidence in that person to engage with things in life that are meaningful for them, it's like taking chains off people. And a lot of our belief systems that have, you know, so so infected patients in the health system leave them chained. You know, they're left frightened. They're left being careful. They're left being dependent on people. They're left being drugged or, you know, worrying about the future. And it's just so unnecessary, I think. Yeah. That um that we do that we gotta move on from that. And look it's a big shift for people. And I you know, if you if you obviously you guys do follow the social media world, there's this war raging out there of clinicians defending their turf. And I'm going, you know, at the fundamentally at the end of the day, the only thing that counts is whether your patient moves on on their life or not that's really what counts (laughs) how you get there is probably a bit of a debate but you know if you're ticking the boxes to say if you're de-threatening pain if you're getting people to shift their focus away from pain to living and you're you know giving them strategies effective strategies to do that where they can self-manage their problem and not become dependent You've done a great job, I reckon. It really
0: harkens back to, you know, I guess I'll speak to my physical therapist role and why we even became about as a profession, because we entered the world to say, no matter what you came in with, whether without a limb, suffering a stroke, whatever, we were here to empower you to show, yep. hey, yep. The, the future's bright. Yeah, we have some exactly. dysfunctional stuff going on, but the future's exactly. bright. Yeah. And we lost and, our way.
1: Yeah. Right. Totally, and I, I reckon the whole biomedical system has really messed that up. You know, the the advent of MRI scanning and stuff has just, you know, a lot of the the very strong path anatomical teaching that has been put into educational programs, which you know systems like the Mackenzie system. You know, and I'm a great advocate of self management, all that, but the whole disc model frightened the hell out of PTs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and I, yeah. I was infected with that thinking as a young PT in New Zealand. We're like, you know, we're frightening to get people to bend. I mean, bending's normal and it's healthy. Like, But we created these path anatomical Scary beliefs that are reinforced with imaging, which is so prevalent now, that's really made us frightened of the body. I think, and so we've become fearful for our for our patients.
0: Our feelings on imaging are are shared very much, and I just think that again, it goes to this understanding that. Whenever new technology is thrown onto the system, I mean, it's been in our career that we've yeah. had the ability to peer inside someone with such yeah. detail. And that yeah. we're just not used to looking inside and seeing yeah. normal stuff.
1: And we've yeah. labeled exactly.
0: normality exactly. pathology.
1: And it's just yeah. it's nuts. It's- It is completely nuts, and I reckon we'll look back on this time and just go, what the hell were we thinking? (laughs) I honestly do. I think we'll go, what on earth were we thinking? You know, and this idea you can image pain is ridiculous. Like, you know, sure enough, with a fracture, but for the majority of pain problems that we see in musculoskeletal pain, you can't image it. It doesn't correlate well with a person's levels of distress and how disabled they are. Anywhere for that matter. We've got about
2: every joint taken down now. As we kind of go international now with this conversation, Tim and I talk often about the real mess that we have going on over here. You know, the, the, the over-imaging, the over-surgerizing, the over-medicalization, um, big pharma driving so much of the education late 90s. Just a real train wreck. H- how does that compare to what you all have going Are, are your folks... Having the same issues and hence coming in with the same fears?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not far behind, sadly. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And look, a lot of it is, well, fear driven and industry driven. Uh, and that's a really potent combination, I think. Industry harnessing fear to sell a product is just terrible. Just done so effectively from a business model, but it's just shocking from a health model. I feel like you're this little, tiny voice against this crowd and it just gets drowned out all the time. Um, and that's why we have to engage in social media. We have to educate the public, I think, because the public has to become wise to make um, informed choices because the industry will keep doing stuff to people.
2: Absolutely. And the problem is it's so damn effective. Fear drives profits in a really, really effective way.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it's shocking. In fact, there was a really interesting paper I just got sent yesterday talking about how fear, you know, utilizing fear in um, health. It's being used quite effectively for smoking campaigns, you know, in terms of obesity and the likes. But it's also used in health in a very negative way to hook people into, you know, overconsumption of drugs. And there's that whole dual side of um, promoting fear from a behavior change perspective. And unfortunately in pain, it's done really badly because you know you go well, you got to be image, and we got to make sure. And you know, and th- but the problem then is how you interpret the image, as you say, that's just not evidence based.
2: Like you said, education wise, we got to get out to the public. I mean, I'm sure we all saw that that MRI study that came out recently. Same patient, ten different centers, ten different answers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <God>. shocking. <laughs> yeah, you know, Peter, I I saw you do a physio. Was it called Physio spots? Um, you did a video on there just to kind of give the audience an idea of. You talked earlier on the show here about how much you've actually changed as a person and, and the way you even see people and the way you see your practice. And I thought that was really clearly reflected. You were having that conversation um, on that video and you said that back in the day, you would watch folks move and, and you would make sort of, you know, biomechanical guesses. Yeah, you know, th- that person's bending over because, you know, this is stuck or that. And, and now you watch someone move and it gives you insight into their self-efficacy, I- into their confidence. Can you elaborate a bit on To me, that is just a huge transformation.
1: And look, that's been a massive shift in my mind. So, you know, the wonderful thing about being a PT is that I've, you know, had developed these or honed these uh, observational skills. You know, I think one of the things that you see with pain, and you'll see this through observing someone's facial expressions, their body posture, their breathing patterns, their agitation, their you know, their behaviors, the way they sit, the way they move, the way they interact, Their behaviors. And, you know, the, the body is a reflection of the mind. You can get a window into the person's mind, their thinking and their fear that they aren't even aware of through observing their behaviors. And, you know, you can do the likes of a, um, a psychosocial screening tool and the person takes, you know, loaf of pain and distress and depression and, and you look at them move, you go, but why are you always standing on that foot? And what do you mean? And they don't even know they're doing So what happens if you load that limb? Oh, I wouldn't do that. Why not? Because, and then you elicit the fear. So the observation of behavior is just such a wonderful insight into the person's thoughts and emotions. Uh, And you often can't elicit that until you expose them to it. You know, that's a very central part of the cognitive functional approach is through the behavior is and so a lot of our interview actually happens in the doing part you know we'll certainly do an interview for a first part but that interview spills into the examination where we're doing exposure and vivo essentially and eliciting people's thoughts and emotions and fears as we get them to do the stuff that they're frightened of and so in a sense the the interview purely just identifies the things that people think they shouldn't do the things they're frightened of the things that hurt that becomes our examination so it's really cool from uh, a point of view of not having to have a, a, a memory of a whole bunch of useless special tests it's the human it's the movement signature of the person that you're examining essentially
0: i love that term movement signature in that it it really goes to you know, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and these skills that we honed of observation through the years. And I would say that you are very skilled at, Peter, the micro expressions, the ability to quickly yeah. see that flutter yeah. of fear. Yeah. of that. And I think a lot of times when, you know, we mentor novices and such, it is that, well, how did you see that right away? And it really yeah. is teaching people that subtlety of yeah. human connection. And without going out on a limb, I think that is that. You say how much you've changed. I think I have too. The, you have to have the ability to be quiet and comfortable and not intervening. Does that make yeah. sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, my interview is a very free form. You know, of course you have domains that you cover in an interview, but essentially, you know, my first question is, tell me a story. Everyone comes to me with a story and usually that first minute you'll hear something really important about their story if you just don't say anything and that will lead you down a path and you know I, i'll always reflect i'm really bad at remembering lists but i'm really good at remembering stories Storytelling telling is how we have learned and shared information over time and people come to us with a story i want to know your story and there are aspects of the story they didn't even know are important that you can draw out of that conversation which are like these golden opportunities to get insight into what's going on for a person. And it's certainly very different to how I was taught as a PT of ticking boxes and running through lists, which just, you know, to me was not about the person sitting in front of me. It was just about this system. You know, that's challenging, I think, for healthcare providers to shift towards that view. But it's so much more rewarding and it's way more validating for the person because they will feel heard. You know, you're interested in them and every aspect of their thoughts and their and the impact that pain has on their life and the emotional impact, the physical impact, the social impact, those things are terribly important for people when they're caught in that process.
0: Oh, so well stated, Peter. And and I think that hopefully our listeners are really tuning into that because what people are craving for is as you said the opportunity to tell our story. I mean, we are human, mm, and we've definitely. taken
1: humanity out of healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. It's shocking. I mean, I could give you countless examples. I, you know, a, a young lady I saw on Friday came in acutely distressed with quite widespread pain that had she's it's been there for now three months. She says she's sleeping about four hours a night. She's taking opioids and valium and other medication to try and sleep and it's not working she's spending all day in bed she's highly distressed and she's been told by her doctor who's done a uh, an mri scan that she's got arthritis she's 40 (laughs) what and and i go so what was going on around the time when your pain began because it came on for no reason and she's going what do you mean i go Tell me about your life. You know, what's what been happening in your life? And all this stuff spills out. You know, she's in an abusive relationship. She's got a disabled son, got a, you know, broken relationship with her parents. She's got financial stress. All of these things, and it cascaded to a critical point, you know, three months ago when this pain erupted. Then she got pain and it became frightening, so she saw the GP who scanned her and got told her she had arthritis. So it just adds one more burden on this person's life. And I sat listening to her, and you could see she couldn't relax. Her body was rigid. She was almost in a hyperventilated state. She was hands were shaking, you know, just awful. And I said, you know, this makes complete sense. It makes total sense. You know, what happens when you're in that situation is your system goes into this fight, flight, fright position, and you're in fright. You know, you're not running anywhere. You're lying in bed. You can't sleep and your body is so, your system is so wound up. That is not about arthritis. That is not about pinched nerves that are shown on your scan. You've got no signs of that. You've got to change how you think about this. We've got to support you to get going. We've got to link you in with counseling services. We've got to get you finding the things in life that are important for you. Now, she came back to me yesterday completely changed (laughs) (laughs) like, She's dropped her. She's dropped her opioids, and I said, "How the hell did you do that?" And I didn't touch her. Right? I didn't. I just sat down, listened to her story, validated her, explained to her, and set her a plan. I said, "Look, I can't fix this. I can't do." And she'd had needling and mobilization and chiropractic and manipulation. Of course, it did nothing. You can't manipulate distress.
0: <laughs> well stated.
1: And, you know, it's one of those moments where you go, I don't know if she'll buy this or not. She came back. She goes, you're the first person to listen to me. You listen to me. It made sense. I get it. She goes, I've been outside. I've been to the beach. I've started taking photographs. I've linked up with a friend. I've ditched my boyfriend. I'm going, you're kidding me? (laughs) You've done all that? I said, how does that feel? She goes, it feels really good. (laughs) <laughs> and then she's gonna, like, can I give you a hug? And I'm going, well, I don't normally do this, but on this occasion, that's fine. <laughs>
2: I think of the the nuanced, skillful interaction that we're talking about here and that you and Tim are both alluding to, you know, that willingness to... To just be with somebody and, and to look for opportunities and to, to not force it—that is very skilled human interaction. I, I guess I would ask really both of you, Peter. I'll start with you. One route, I guess, to get there is is to to be willing to make a lot of mistakes and to stay in the game for you know a couple decades and you, you know re- really work on it. And that, that's a reasonable path forward. But for all of our listeners who are in a variety of healthcare settings, was there something that maybe accelerated that for for you guys? It was was there a book? Was there a a method that you used to kind of get to a place where you had that sort of skillful interaction
1: oh wow that's a really good question I it, you know I could write a book about the people who I've seen who have changed my beliefs <laughs> the cases that I've seen that have fundamentally changed my beliefs um, so that would be one uh, dealing with human beings and you know genuinely caring I mean I, I, I genuinely love working with patients and that's why I'm still working in clinical practice Um, I genuinely love it. I love... That ability to sit with a with a person, the privilege of listening to their story and hearing what's happening in their life, I I love that. So, because of that, my patients have come back to me telling me that what I've done didn't work. They've been honest enough to come back. Where often I think we lose people and we think they're better and they're not better at all. So I think they've entrusted me enough that they realise that that I've been genuine and I genuinely care to come back and be very honest with me. And And I think. Being very brutally self-reflective as well, I think has been another part of that. To sit back and honestly question my own beliefs and behaviors, I think is really important in learning. And they talk about that as an open mindset. Um, The other thing would be surround yourself with people who are honest at critiquing you. And I've been really, really fortunate to work with some incredibly smart people. Who will brutally disarm my beliefs, <laughs> and and that's been really painful at times for me personally, where people have have really dismantled or questioned my belief systems, uh, and that's forced me to go away and reflect. Be armed with evidence. There's something really wonderful of being thoroughly armed with good understanding of what what you know neuroscience of understanding um, human behavior of um, understanding the, the kind of problem that presents as it walks in the door uh, instead of just being stuck in these really rigid narrow biomedical paradigms which don't explain what we see and the, the final thing would be don't give up I mean I'm I would someone would describe me probably as like a dog with a bone I don't let go of that bone easily so I will keep working with somebody and I'm playful and I'm you know I'm a rule breaker naturally so I'm prepared to step outside my training and play with things and you know I think probably I've become a way more playful as a therapist in terms of getting people to just do stuff that's meaningful go for a walk to the park roll around on the floor you know whatever whatever it is that you are troubled with let me take you to that so very long-winded answer, but there's lots of things that have probably influenced that journey.
2: Tim, any thoughts? Because I see so many similarities in the way that you interact. I mean, I've only had the pleasure of watching Peter um virtually, but I, I've seen it with you in person, very similar, that patience, that honest, caring. I mean, any any strategies, or, or, or would you say it is sort of along those lines of just being true to the process and having your whole heart in it and being authentic? And then year over year, that's sort of a, a luxury of um of being in the game in that way.
0: He, the first time I met you, Peter, you may not even remember. We went for I a sure run. Did. <laughs> yeah. And we were in a swimming pool, and we yeah. were talking about aging parents. You know, similar points, life, and, you know, and you realize the humanity of a moment. And you yeah. understand that I think what has made me continue to strive and be a better therapist is looking across and seeing the human there that has a story that has challenges and walking with instead of trying to fix.
1: Absolutely, yeah. That's so liberating. I I think there was a tipping point for me as a manual therapist where I felt burdened to fix people and it was terrible. It was terrible. I hated it because I couldn't do it Mm -hmm. And there was that tipping point where, as you say, it's like the partnership of like saying, you know, I'm your coach. I can't actually be honest. I can't like this lady I saw on Friday. I can't fix your problem. But look, there's the human body and nervous system. is so extraordinarily plastic and adaptable that we can journey together and link you up with other people to kind of coach you through back to getting living again. That's a wonderful thing to do to people. And as you said, Tim, I think it takes us back to where we came from, actually. It's like, what's you know, this is a journey. And actually saying that journey for some people might be pretty quick. For others, it might be really long. But I'm going to stay with you on the journey. And if my skill set is limiting your journey, I will get you in with someone else who can advance your journey. I think that
2: burden is responsible for a huge amount of burnout. You know, I, I know oh. in, in some of the mentorship groups I work with, people are just banging their head against a wall. I try to kind of give them a little bit of that talk. You know, you mentioned they're walking along in the process and you know, one mm. of the I've heard you say historically is even if I could change your pain dramatically, which maybe I could with some needles and some manipulation, should I, right? Because I've heard you say that passive strategies don't give people self
1: management strategies and that's what empowers them, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And look, I can think of countless times when I have elected not to provide pain relief because I know that this person needs to know they can do it. This is about empowering people to be in control of their health. And I suppose this is where I get frustrated. I hear people go, well, you know, this you're all hands off. That is rubbish. You know, I put my hands on every human being. We have license to touch. Touch is such a powerful tool for reassurance, for caring, for uh, validation, for de-stressing people for um, learning for education but you know touch is central to what we do but that's different to me as the clinician doing something to you to fix you and that I don't feel comfortable with in my world now.
0: This has been a, an incredible conversation that we could go on for hours and we have to have you back on the show because this is this has been, there's so many other questions I have to ask. But for our listeners, would you mind maybe just a lot, letting them know how do they find you and for patients as well on uh, yeah. social media, YouTube, to, to learn more about these things?
1: Pete O'Sullivan PT is my Twitter handle, pain underscore ed. A website that uh, a group of uh, clinical researchers so we post patient stories we post um, research just to try and shift that perspective around pain in terms of um, youtube clips if you just google my name on youtube prof peter o'sullivan you'll see a bunch of clips come up uh, one of them uh, is around the facts and fiction of back pain which has had actually had quite a few views and that's really a compilation of people's stories. Before we sign off, Peter, I just really want to say thanks so much.
2: I can't imagine how many times you've heard this, but that work you're putting out there has changed a lot of my patients' lives. I mean, it's liberated me from that that feeling of trying to fix that patho that pathoanatomical problem and instead allowed me to be kind of that caring voice and that guide in decreased threat and decreased fear and improve movement. And I've watched a lot of folks go back to their lives that I think would not have if I hadn't bumped into your content. So I can't say thanks enough.
1: I work with a wonderful group of people and you know, researchers like Ann Smith and Karen O'Sullivan and Leon Straker and Peter Kent and, and others who have just enabled me to do the work I do. It's certainly not about me. It's about a group of people. You know, what you're saying um, heartens me. And when I was in the States last year, I was actually genuinely surprised that people who came up and said, oh, look, I've read your work. It's really good. I'm going, gee, have you? <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> like, that was a complete, you know, those wasted hours <laughs> have had some benefits. <laughs> and I think these conversations, the work you guys are doing and just shifting that conversation and allowing people to be honest and ask these questions. It's just so important to move us forward. So well done, you guys, on the work you do.
2: Beautiful. Thanks. Can't wait to have you on again, Peter. Good on you. Thanks. It's
1: been fun. Wow, what
2: an incredible episode with Dr. Peter O'Sullivan. Folks, for those of you who have been listening for a long time, have been tracking our episodes and really listening to all of the the healthcare providers that have come on and trying to bump folks forward, I think the real common theme here is that compassion and that care and that willingness to drop your guard and be authentic and walk alongside people. That's what's been missing in the medical industrialized complex. And when you listen to giants like Peter say, that's what the magic is. If you're asking me how I got here, it's been caring deeply and caring for long periods of time and willing to drop my ego and when those patients came back and said, I'm not better, being willing not to be defensive, but to face that, to learn from that, and ultimately to move forward because it's not about you. Right? And I think that that was Peter's message was he was happy patients came back and gave him bad news because it gave him another chance to learn, another chance to improve, and another chance to change one person's life. And that to me is what this entire thing is all about, our careers and this podcast. So folks, thank you for all the continued support. As always, you can find us on ispinstitute.com. Always downloading us on iTunes. Tim and I are all over social media, hashtag painreframed and at EIM team. Thank you all so much. Enjoy the rest of your morning or evening and we will see you again on the next episode of Pain Reframed. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming
0: at ispinstitute.com.